The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. with you people there there we are there's probably a clear understanding of what we're going to talk about today right arguing one of one of the human things we do we argue welcome to episode four of human things this is jay watts of merely human ministries we argue we do it we love it it's a national or or even an internet a world pastime greater than soccer We're just going to fight about stuff. It's almost as if the internet was made so that we would have a more efficient means of reaching each other, being ugly to to each other about trivial things and fighting. So that's what I want to talk about today, because if there has been a theme for the past couple of weeks for me, as I've been prepping for this and praying about even deciding what subject matter to do, I have just heard from so many people this line. I'm sick of it, man. I'm sick of it. Shelter in place, sick of it. Stay at home, sick of it. You're one of those people that want to go out and not be at home anymore, sick of you. You want to wear a mask? I'm sick of that. You won't wear a mask? You too. Sick of all of it. Heard from a parent today, kids are sick of being home. Sick of having to socially distance from their friends. Tired of sitting in lawn chairs six feet apart in their driveway if anybody wants to talk to each other. Tired of limited food options. Tired of limited means to have that food brought to you. Tired of cold food. Tired of old food. Tired of that. Tired of this. Everything. I am just flat out sick of it. And you go online and man, we are sick of each other. I am tired of hearing that from that person. I'm tired of hearing that from that person over there. I'm tired from this person. We love to argue. It's a human thing, man. I used, to, I used to tell people all the time, one of the most productive things in the world is to have pointless things to argue about. I, I love to argue about sports, just love to. Now, talking about today, you know, there's always a question of who is this person? Who, who has the right? What is their qualifications for, for discussing arguing today? On this any particular subject, what are the qualifications? So I'm going to give you my qualifications today, right? First, my qualification for discussing arguing will come from the fact that I'm a Watts. Man, we were bred, born, and marinated in arguing growing up. And not friendly arguing, not constructive arguing, but the worst kind of arguing imaginable. Before Twitter existed and tried to weaponize 140 characters to do maximal emotional damage to somebody, that's when the Watts Thanksgiving existed. You know, we, we were we were being taught to find your, your very insecurity inside your soul and to draw that out and release it back into you rhetorically in the most hateful and hurtful manner from the first time that I can remember. We knew how to argue, man, and not about important things. One of the worst arguments I've ever had in my life, maybe the worst, one of the ugliest things that has ever happened between me and another human being happened between me and a sibling 
on Christmas Day when we had a fight. These were the two opposing sides. I thought the colorization of movies, which became a popular trend back in the 80s, was a bad thing because movies were shot in black and white. The lighting was black and white. The intention to see them as an art form was black and white. This other sibling took the position that they liked color. It made the, look, the movie look more modern, felt more relevant to them. That's it. That's what the two of us were disagreeing about. I can't even remember how we got to the level that we got to, but man, it was scorched earth. Burn it all. Leave zero sum game arguing. I will take everything from you arguing over that stupid subject matter. One of my friends was still one of my best friends in the world. I remember he and I one time had the longest, loudest, most obnoxious, angry argument about whether or not I sided with Denzel Washington or Gene Hackman in the movie Crimson Tide. I mean, it was flat out nasty and ugly because he had come from a similar family to mine. It's mine. Arguing was just the way we were raised. And so one of my qualifications for discussing arguing today is I'm a Watts man and we know how to argue, but not, not in a good way, in the worst imaginable way. And I've experienced it in all of its full-throated, irrational glory through all of the early days of my life. The second qualification I have to discuss this is that I argue for a living. Is it those qualities, those traits that I had when I was younger? God was able to refine them a bit and give me some rules, some guidelines, some better spirit, and to put me in a place where I can walk onto campuses and have discussions. I talk about abortion. Like one of the most emotional issues in the world, and you talk about it all the time. How can you go and talk about abortion and people not, not bother you and people lose their minds? I say, well, number one, and we'll talk about this later. I know what I'm there to discuss. But the other thing is, let's go back to what I said a second ago. Man, what do you think those people in that audience could possibly say to me that could be as bad as some of the things my dad said to me in some of our fights? You know, my... People that I love, who are closest to me in this world, said some of the most hateful, awful things that any other human being has ever said to me in my life on Thanksgiving and Christmas. What is a room full of strangers going to do to me? What have they got? They got nothing, man. They can't touch me. I grew up in the crucible of the Watts family, and I'm, God has refined that characteristic, that ability to stand there, but to take it in grace and mercy. So I've operated on both sides of this, both from the crazy, irrational, worldly way of fighting over stupid things, and then also, hopefully, as a representative of the kingdom of Christ, handling graciously and respectfully some of the most important moral issues of our age. And to be able to take on this issue in a constructive way where we get people closer to the truth. I've been deeply involved in both of those things, so I feel like I got something to say about arguing and discussing this. Now, first, the first question we have to ask, and there's going to be, we always have little sections. Like the first section that we're going to talk about here is, are we supposed to argue? I mean, there's a, there's a lot, especially from Paul, oddly enough, from Paul talking about don't argue, or at least don't entertain a particular kind of argument. 
Admonitions and warnings abound throughout the Bible of letting emotions get the best of you and operating in anger. Always, always encouraged to act in love. And Paul, Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. No grumbling, no disputing. This is right after one of the most famous passages in the Bible where, where Paul tells us to be like Christ who did not seek equality with God, but humbled himself and made himself as nothing, as a servant. In this particular case, I do love the wording of the King James Version where it said, made himself a man of no reputation. So do it without grumbling. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's in 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 14. Now, going to 22, same chapter. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. We are to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels, and the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. We are repeatedly throughout the Bible told to avoid this kind of Silly argument. These things that aren't essential to our relationship with God. Remember I said, I think back in the first episode, I talked about how I reboot all the time and go back to the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the scripture is always driving us back to those things. And so as a Christian, as you see my, as I see myself drawn in, because that's what I have to take care of first, right? In one of my studies this week, and I was reading Spurgeon, and I'm going to really, really paraphrase what Spurgeon said here. He talked about the strife that comes, the, 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 the struggles, the things that we're going to come across in this world. And he says, look in four directions. First, look up towards God and realize that you're seeking perfection. And that perfection will take refinement. And that refinement will include struggles. Look down and see to whom you once were a servant. And no master gives up his servant easily. So don't imagine that he won't fight back for you. So he will bring struggle into your life. Says, look around and see that you're a stranger in a strange land. 
expect it to constantly be coming after you to return you back to the form that you once were in before you found yourself in the grace of Christ. And then the last one is to look inside yourself. And he said, and see that there's enough sin in your own heart to trap you every day if you're not careful. Keep track of yourself. So it starts, how do I not get drawn into this? Because I'm not impervious to it. I have those moments where I am sick and tired of this. And I can feel it coming out because sameness just starts to bug me. Little things that just, I didn't care for the first time. And then you've been in the house with people for a month and a half. And that same thing is happening over and over again. And as your gracious, as my graciousness wanes, I just hear this sharpness in my tongue coming out. I feel the uncharitableness in my spirit growing. It's my job to get a hold of that, to wrestle that bad boy down, to remember that I have been told not to get into these silly arguments, not to pick some stupid little thing and then just start to attack on it, to brandish some little thing that someone said as a weapon against them, not to draw them closer to God, not to draw them closer to the truth, but to make them pay for the way that I feel right now. Whether it's just frustrated, confused, and afraid. That's the kind of arguing we're being warned about. It's not productive. And that's why Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Get it out. Cast it out, right? I'm not trying to get you to a place where you're closer to the truth, closer to God, more at peace. I take that very seriously. I try to evaluate the work that I do in the public space. Part of what I want to do is to make sure in as much as it is possible on my part that I am at peace with all men. Now, I know that there's some level of conflict, and that's what we'll get to next. I know there's some level of conflict that's necessary, but that should be the dividing line. I will oppose those things that are necessary for me to oppose. Now, years ago, years ago, I remember when, when I used to work in a warehouse and I was a, a, a warehouse shipping clerk and I was a fairly young Christian and I was just, I, I got this great job in a warehouse and I mean it, I loved that job because I, all I had to do during the day was read a ticket pull things off the shelf, give them to customers, put them on trucks, take them off the trucks, put them up on the shelves. This job just did not require a ton of thought. That was great because that left me to spend all of my thinking on learning about God, to expend all of my energy on learning about this new relationship that I had with God. I was able to, to go home and not worry about work. Because when what you do is pull things off shelves and put them on trucks to ship, when you're sitting at home, there's just nothing to worry about. I can't work from home. Nobody's expecting me to do anything. It's the, it's the great blessing of having that kind of a blue collar job. It was a great level of peace that I enjoyed that when I got done, I was both physically worn out and done with my job for the day and I could just leave it. There was no sense in which I sat around at night worried that I didn't put up a box or get it into the right truck or anything. I knew what I'd done during the day and I would fix everything tomorrow. And I loved that job. 
And I remember going out and I would sit in the, the parking lot and I would listen to sermons during lunch because that was so early in my faith. I was just hungry to learn something, right? And I remember one guy saying, talking about people with, with a personality like mine, with a bent like mine, and engaging, wanting to engage people. And he said, if you are like that, you should do everything that you can to spend the rest of your life never saying anything to anybody. And man, that made me crazy. When that pastor said that, I was going nuts. And then he just kept going after that. And I didn't hear a word he said. And then later on, I mean, it was like 10 minutes later in a sermon. He said, let me tell you what's going on right now. He said, the people that I described earlier, the people that I, I described their personalities, their giftings. He said, right now they're sitting there and they haven't heard a word I've said for the last 10 minutes. And he said, let me help you guys out. If this is the way you're wired, if this is the way you're gifted, if this is the way that God made you, this sort of constant engagement person, if you do everything that you can to say nothing at all for the rest of your life, you will barely be tolerable for the rest of us. And then that lesson just hit home because I thought he's not saying that I should literally never engage anything. What he's saying is the lesson that I need to learn is that my nature is to engage and so I need to decide that almost everything that I could argue about is pointless and silly and save my energy and my spirit and all the rest of that stuff for the most important engagements. As a matter of fact, I've gone even farther than that. I am hardly on social media anymore. Mostly because I, I would try to say things that I thought were mildly funny or entertaining because, you know, have to keep the Facebook adoring audience happy as if I had one. And then I get these personal messages from people. They were just outraged and offended by the, and it didn't matter the, the, the joke that I told it made somebody, I had, I had just a large enough friend list that somebody was angry with me, no matter what I said, that was, that was the size of my friend list. No adoring crowd, no, no tons of, no comment thread full of people telling me how much they love me. I had just a large enough friend list that no matter what tiny little joke I tried to tell Somebody got offended and I heard about it. And, and at first my instinct was just to argue with them and to go back and forth. And then I stopped, but then I noticed that, that many of my other friends didn't stop. And so it got kind of nasty in the comment threads and I liked everybody arguing with each other. So finally I just basically got off. I got off altogether. And you know what happened? It was the most amazing thing happened. I was just filled with a great deal of peace. At first it was weird because I didn't realize how much I trained myself to see life as posts. You know, something would happen. Hey, that would be a great post. I got to remember that. I'm going to post about that later. But I'm not posting right now. And I'm, I'm on a, you know, a, a strict no posting discipline for a while here. And then the next thing that happened was I started talking to my wife more, which she had told me for years. She said, you know, I read things about our life on Facebook and I hear about it first in your post before you've talked to me. It's just ridiculous. And it was true. I, after I got off of Facebook to get away from the fighting, to get away from the arguing, I would see something and my first thought would be, that'd be a great post. And then my second thought would be, but I'm not posting right now. And then you know what my third thought was? I guess I'll tell Tracy about it because she's standing right there and she's my wife, my, my life partner, my mate, the person who completes me one in the eyes of God. I guess I could just talk to her and not the ever offended Facebook audience that I'm seeking to please with my silly, stupid jokes. 
And there was so much peace. As every event in my life became something to share with the people right next to me. And I didn't feel like I had to argue or worry about anything. Because nobody was out to argue with me. They would just look at me and nod. Yeah, that was interesting. That was nice. So avoiding that silliness does bring peace. And just the discipline of not allowing other people to draw you into it. It's pride most of the time. It's pride. I just want to, I just want to be right. Or I know I'm right. Another thing, and interestingly enough, it came in a form of a meme. A friend of mine years ago posted a meme where it said, hey, come. His wife was calling from the other end. He was on the computer. He said, hey, honey, come to bed. And he's like, just a minute. Somebody's wrong on the internet. I got to fix this, right? And I thought, oh, my gosh, that is so absurd. I remember one night I had had a back and forth with somebody in a comment thread. And I was sitting around dinner with my young children at the time, young children and my wife. And I was so angry about what this person had said and thinking about how I was going to respond to it. And, and here's my wife and my beautiful children, young, sitting at the table, wanting to talk to me about those weird, crazy things that kids have on their minds. And I'm not hearing any of it because some anonymous dude said something I didn't agree with. And I was sitting at the dinner table steaming, trying to figure out what I was going to respond to. And just struck me. This is crazy. Strangers have found their way into my heart and are robbing me of these moments at the table with my family, not because there's some important issue that has to be hashed out, but because right now I don't like the idea of somebody out there thinking I'm wrong no matter what it's about. And to this day, I couldn't tell you what the argument was about. But I couldn't tell you how it made me feel at the kitchen table. And from that moment on, I decided I won't be arguing about my work online. I show up and argue face-to-face. People are more human face-to-face. People, I guess, feel more responsibility, for the most part, feel more responsibility to treat other human beings. Maybe, Maybe it's just the sense that if you go too far face-to-face, somebody might actually pop you in the face. I don't know. But eye-to-eye, human-to-human, they tend to control themselves a little bit more. At least for me, they do. I, see, I mean, people just are the worst versions of themselves in comment threads. But you get the same person in front of you in a conversation. And there's multiple reasons for that, but no time to go into it. And so the discipline of just saying, I'm going to do everything that I can to avoid all arguments and disputes and to remain at peace at people with people. But that's not possible. So we can do everything that we can to avoid it. We should do everything we can to avoid it. We've been warned to do everything that we can to avoid it, to keep our life profitable. But, but Paul, the guy who just said all that in 2 Corinthians 11, when he's bragging about how great he is, when he's saying about how much harder he's worked, he's been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the cities, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. And all of those stonings and beatings and jailings, they weren't because he was getting along with everybody. I mean, it's funny to me that Paul is such a strong voice for not arguing when the first thing I learned about Paul when I became a Christian 
is that he's an arguer. Paul is just in everybody's face. That was what I was taught by other Christians when I first became a Christian. Paul is in everyone's face. That's the defining characteristic of Paul. Paul doesn't let it go. If Paul sees it, he calls it out. That's Paul's. That's who Paul is. And so we have these conflicting messages from Paul who says, don't engage in silly, stupid things. But Paul's life testifies that there are arguments that Paul believes are important to be had. As a matter of fact, we're told constantly about him arguing. He showed up here, he argued there. Mars Hill, he argues this point. He goes to the synagogue and he argues. He's always arguing. It's Paul. So there's clearly things that Paul believes fall into the category of stuff that we should argue about. As a matter of fact, it is so important that if you get beat for arguing for it, so what? Stone? Just part of the job. Prison? Been there, done that. If that makes you unpopular, so be it. And so learning that there are things that we have to argue that's one of the reasons I talk about when I talk about abortion. I tell people, look, I don't care what side of the issue you're on on this. I don't care if you're pro-life or pro-choice. We have to argue. We have no choice. You can't just, this isn't just one of those things, like, well, let's just agree to disagree. I can't do that. When a pro-choice person ever says to me, well, can't we just agree to disagree on that? How can I possibly do that? You see, there is a category of human life that you believe you are free to kill. But I don't believe that. I believe that every human being ought to be treated with dignity and respect from the moment they come into existence to the time that they die. I believe it's a great moral injustice to take the life of another human being through the practice of abortion. So I can't just live and let live on this one any more than I could live and let live if you were killing two-year-olds in my neighborhood or 10-year-olds in my neighborhood. I have a moral responsibility to engage this issue. And so do you. If you disagree, you do. Because you believe that however, however I might be inspired by noble ideas of dignity of all human life, if you think that the unborn are the kind of human life that we're allowed to kill, not a person, not somebody that's due moral duty and obligation, then you have to argue as well, because I'm going to try to restrict a practice that has no moral component to it whatsoever and interject myself into the life of women who are just trying to make private medical decisions and doctors who are just trying to fulfill their duty, their medical duties. One of us is right. They are the kind of thing that we should protect, cherish. They are human life or they're not. But either way, the moral implications for being wrong are so high, we have to engage this issue. I honestly think that the argument that we've had over the last couple of months about what is the most profitable way for us, and I don't mean financially profitable, I mean what establishes the most good for our community, what does it mean to pursue the good for our community, which path is the is the path that seeks the most good for our community, is it shelter in place? Is it social distancing? Is it allowing businesses to operate and adults to make decisions in their life about where they go and where they don't go and make those decisions for their family? Is it about operating as a free society that takes in at some inherent risk? Or is it about taking a moment where we sacrifice some freedom of movement to love our neighbors in a different way than we did yesterday? These are important things we have to talk about. 
That's why it's not productive to accuse. Always, 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 we always have to assume as much as possible the most charitable interpretation of the people who are disagreeing with us. The people who think that we should open up society don't hate old people and diabetics. They just worry that if you destroy the economy, there will be far more damage to humanity and to the greater good of all than there will be if we just let ourselves act like responsible adults and keep things open. By the same token, the people who think that the best way to love our neighbors right now is to restrict our community, to restrict our access to each other, to close things down, to find some way to buttress the economy through a, a social effort. They're not cowards. They're not, they're not people who are gutless and spineless, not anti-American by their very nature. They just believe a different path is the path to good in this particular case. This is an argument we got to have. Like adults have a conversation about it. It's of such moral importance. We have to have this conversation. Now, by the way, I would say that the discussion about mask doesn't rise to that level for me. I'm not interested in it. I mean, I, I, I see people questioning the Christianity and faith of people who wear masks. I have friends who I have deep and, uh, and still to this day have a huge amount of respect for and know the quality of their character saying that if you wear a mask, you're a coward or you look stupid. Eh, I don't care. You know, I'm trying my best to figure out who's who's right about the mask thing. The World Health Organization says no mask the day after they said mask. Another friend of mine, the surgeon, says mask. Another friend of mine who works in the medical profession says don't worry about the mask. I'm doing my best to figure that one out, but I don't care enough to argue about it because I don't think at the end of the day, if you choose to wear a mask, you're a stupid looking coward. And I don't think if you choose not to wear a mask, you hate old people and want diabetics to die. And I think it's, it, that falls into the category of let's probably just give each other grace on that one. Right. One of them is a seriously important thing that we have to discuss. And one of them I think falls down lower on the list of priorities. And so I just don't engage in that particular one because I don't see the urgency on that. I do see the urgency on hearing people out on closing things up or leaving them open on a more robust economic approach to this or a more government centered approach to it. And that's an important issue that needs to be discussed. So there are things that elevate and particularly obviously for Paul, the error that leads you to separation from God. And this gets us into another point. And this is why it's so easy for me to argue. This is why I'm able to go in and have discussions. So many principals have said something to me. They said, you know what surprised, I bet surprised my students more than anything. I, you know what I bet shocked them more than anything when I heard your presentation today in the Q&A afterwards? When you said conversationally, you didn't bring it up to beat them up over the head, but you said, I don't care what you think of me. Said, I bet that was shocking to my students to have someone stand in front of them, talk about something as controversial as abortion, and then say, I just don't care what you think about me. Well, why don't I care what they think about me? Because it's not about me. As I've trained people around this country and even around the world a little bit, and I've talked to them, I said, look, you've got, when you get in there and you start to have this discussion, you've got to really be focused on the idea. The question is, what is the unborn and what are our moral obligations and duties to them? It's not about me. I don't care if they hate me. They don't know me. Not really. I'm not arguing abortion's bad because I'm a good guy. So know me, love me. You know, I'm not, I'm not a Vita prone up there. You know, love me. Don't reject me. 
I'm, I'm just saying, hey, look, this is the science. This is the philosophy. This is, to me, the best explanation of both when human life begins and how to understand our responsibility and duties to human life at the earliest stage of development within a greater argument that there's this thing of equal human dignity, equal human value that is shared across the human family and grounded in our identity as human beings. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make here. And none of that has anything to do with me. And so that's one of the reasons it's easy for me to have this conversation because it's not about me. It's about the truth. And the truth is important, not me. There's this thing called the correspondence theory of truth and good argument. What that means very briefly is that there's a way things are and the language that we use in one way or another either corresponds to the way things objectively are, or it doesn't And arguing in its best sense is our attempt to reveal something as close as possible that corresponds to the objective way that things are and to weed out bad ideas that don't correspond to the way things are. Arguing is about seeking the truth and it has nothing to do with me as a human being. That's an important thing to argue about. It's an important thing to discuss and it has nothing to do with me personally. It's not agreeing with me. It's what is the truth. We're arguing to get to the truth. What is the unborn? That's the truth of the discussion that we have to get to. And that's why I, you know, I share stories some because I like stories, but I don't argue from those stories when I'm standing in front of audiences. I argue from science and philosophy on the nature of unborn life or any, any particular area that I get into a discussion, discussion about. I try to find points where there's some meaning, some common ground between the two of us where we can agree to terms and so that they don't have to rely on the strength of my personality or ability to present the information. Now, I will say this as we wrap this idea up, because what have I said so far is that we should probably not argue. We should do everything that we can to keep from arguing so that we reserve our arguments for those things that are worthy of discussion, for those areas where being in error is of genuine danger to me as a human being. I might treat other human beings in a horrifyingly unjust manner. I might believe things about myself, what I am and where I fit into this universe that will be ultimately destructive to me as a human being. I might never know truths that are necessary for me to be what I was intended to be, to, to refine our ability to argue with each other by, by focusing on the objective argument points that this style of arguing that'll get us closest to the truth. But man, as a friend of mine years ago had a nasty run in with some other people and he was, he was upset about it and he and I were discussing it and I was like, man, we've got to, we got to remember we're broken. I, I, I have tried very hard over my years as a Christian to never allow myself to make a mistake that I see other people make. Oftentimes I see pastors make it, which is to believe that it's me and God on one side and all those idiots messing up on the other. And you guys need to get on our side over here. I've never been confused about how this relationship works. I've always known that it's God there and all the rest of us idiots over here. And I am as broken and as messed up and as wrong as everybody else. Just in different places at different times about different subject matters. But there's enough wrong, as I was talking about earlier uh, in reading 
the Spurgeon book where Spurgeon said, there's enough wrong with you today to keep you busy, man. There's enough wrong just in your own heart to mess up all your plans and to keep you from being where you need to be. And so I told my friends, like, you know, you got broken parts. I got broken parts. They got broken parts. And sometimes the worst of us, just our broken parts, just rub against each other wrong and nasty things happen. Right. And I'll say two things about that in closing. Number one, I learned, you know, it's funny. I, it's odd sometimes when you learn about Christ through an intermediary that doesn't honor him fully. Right. I think the, you know, if you get slapped on one side, offer up the other, I know Gandhi took that to heart in a, in a real strong way. And I was fascinated with Gandhi before I became a Christian and my fascination with him continued after. And I don't, I don't deify him. I don't think of him as anything more than a, a, a very broken guy that had some really cool ideas in some areas and, and really influenced a lot of people powerfully. What I do find fascinating about him is how he was able to internalize some of the lessons of Jesus while rejecting other aspects of him. And one of the things that he said one time was he gave me this terminology that helped me. He talked about pocketing the insult. When I was reading Gandhi's autobiography, he, I read this part where he talked about pocketing the insult. He took the insult and he put it in his pocket. And man, that has helped me. That imagery has helped me since the day that I read it. And I was aware at the time that I was hearing something that Jesus taught Gandhi and that Gandhi taught to me and that I learned about Jesus through someone else's example. But for that imagery, when I have been offered insult and in every part of my what's body, and soul and spirit wants to lash back out in the most destructive and effective display of everything that I was raised to be. I just take it and I put that bad boy in my pocket, pat on it there and say, it'll stay there. We'll just take it. We'll just endure it. We'll, we'll be okay. We'll pocket that insult. And the last thing I wanted to share in, in regards to that, and in the, I think in the last podcast I talked about apologizing and the power of apologizing has been for me in my life of, of repentance to the people around me, no matter what. And I, I joked about being raised in a household where there, we could just war with each other, but it has, it has left parts of me messed up. And I've, I've tried so hard to be a better man, but sometimes it just comes out nasty. And I've sat down with my kids and I've told them and we talked and we've talked about my father and we've talked about my family and we've talked about me growing up. Not all bad. I talk about some of the great things, some of the fun things that happen. Mostly I try to talk about the things that I admired but sometimes the other stuff comes out and sometimes they see it. Sometimes my more than anybody else in this world, my family sees the broken part of Jay far more than everybody else in this world. They see it. They see my brokenness in this house. They see it when I'm frustrated. They see it when I've been locked in. They see it when some stupid thing starts to bother me and I have lost all ability to pocket the insult or appeal to God. And it just comes roaring out. And so I sit my kids down and I apologize. No matter how young they were, when they were very young, I would sit them down and I would say, daddy is sorry. 
I should have never responded the way that I did to you. And that's not okay. And my kids are so great. Look, it's okay, Daddy. No, it's not. But I've also had a long talk with them. All of them set them down together and said, you know, God has been so good to help me become better, to help me be less argumentative, less angry, less reactionary, to focus myself on things that are important, to focus my discussions on things that matter. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you see the, the, the part of me that I wish wasn't alive anymore. The stuff that I wish had just disappeared altogether. And I don't want that to be a lesson because our, our attitudes, not just our attitudes, our actions teach the people around us lessons, right? My kids learn how to treat their kids and their future wives and their families based on how I'm treating mine. And so when something awful comes out, some argument gets out of hand, I act ungracious or disrespectful to them or to their mother. And as that, that moment of shame hits and I sit them down and I say, Hey, you know, I was raised in a different household than you're growing up in. And there are parts of me that I wish were not still here. And I'm trying my hardest to learn my lessons from God and to let that part of me die and never come out again. But I need you to know that it needs to die with me if it never dies in my lifetime to me. That when you have these moments of stress later on, that you don't learn the lesson from watching me in these moments, that it's okay. It's not. We need to talk to each other in this house with love and respect. We need to talk to the people in our community with love and respect. When we disagree with them, we need to do so with love and respect. We need to remember that they are all of us, every single one of us, the image bearers of God, and that we are supposed to argue about the things that are so important that to leave them alone will be dangerous to us as a society and will let evil foster. We have to argue when it's time for us to grow as close to the truth as we possibly can for the good of all of us. But what you just saw and what you see Every day in social media in the world around us, that's not who we're supposed to be. So I, I said, I need you to understand. I don't want to be that guy. In the world, in the house you're growing up with, you don't see anything like what I grew up with, except in these little flashes or these moments where I'm not who I should be. But you need to understand that it is the prayer of your heart, your father's heart. It is the desire and will of my heart that the worst of me dies with me and that it not carry on to the next generation. Let what I grew up with, where I was born and bred and made for, let the ugly parts of it end and let only the arguments that God would have you do be left and let those be things that matter and have value to all. Until next time, this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Have a great day. And all good things, just like Olaf said, all good things.